Hey guys, and welcome to the Family Business in Dava podcast. We are the voice of African family business, promoting generational wealth and generational legacies. And my name is Tutum Tendi. And I am Nikia Amani. And we're going to be taking you through the journey of African family business. Good afternoon, Emma. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon for your session at the FB21. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you, Sitsi. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm not going to talk too much because this is your time. I'm going to let you introduce yourself and just get right into your presentation. Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Um, and thanks to everybody else that's joining us today. It's a real pleasure to be here with you all. Um, so I will just dive straight in, given that we are short on time. Um, so about a little bit about me. Um, I'm a family business consultant at the Family Business Consultancy in the UK. Um, so I work with business families on generational transition, establishing family business governance, managing family business dynamics, um, next generation uh, integration, to name a few. I run next generation education programs and I've also trained professionals from varied disciplines on uh, working with business families. Um, so I've, I've over 15 years experience of working with business families. Um, I hail from a corporate legal background um, and I am also currently the private wealth lead at UK top 100 law firm Mitchell Moores. So um, a bit more about today. Uh, when I first spoke to Sitsi, um, she told me that successful G1 to G2 transitions in Africa um, is at around the 2% mark, um, which obviously is, is, isn't a high number. Um, the statistic in the UK is uh, reported to be around 30%, although there is some, um, some debate around whether that is true. Um, now, of course, I'm, I'm no expert whatsoever in African family businesses or what's driving that statistic. However, as I was able to talk to you about anything I like today, um, it seemed like a good place to spend some time. Um, and as no doubt you, you will know, uh, failure to carry out succession planning is widely cited as a key reason for failed successions within family businesses. So on to today. I like to learn through stories. So I thought that we would spend some time today exploring a real life family business story, one that we at the Family Business Consultancy were privileged uh, to work on uh, as the family um, approached their G1 to G2 transition. Um, this was some time ago. So at the time I was, I was a lawyer working very closely with the uh, family business consultant on the case. And it's a story that we have permission to share um, in order to encourage others not to leave their succession until it's too late. And the story is one of a succession that nearly didn't happen. It's a simple story. Um, so hopefully we can do it some justice in the time available to us. Um, 
but despite despite what appears on the surface to be relative simplicity it does um, raise a lot of issues and themes that um, are seen uh, in in all sorts of uh, walks of family business life um, it's a story which touched me whilst it was unfolding uh, and has remained with me for 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 many years and my hope today is that you can find something in the story that resonates with your own story and, and that is of use to you so as time is short let's just delve right in but before we do um, you might just want to jot down if you're that way inclined no no um, pressure but if you'd like to sort of jot down any themes that occur to you as we're going um, and then you can do a little comparison against the summary near the end so the story health tech limited founded in 1979 by leo phillips um, and it operate in operated in the health technology sector um, a small uk company but with global clients and leo the founder generation one was uh, a leader in his field a leading light uh, the business turned over about three million pounds um, so certainly on the smaller end of, of businesses and employed maybe 40 or so people and due to leo's failing health so when we met him he was in his late 70s leo's son james phillips returned home to take control of the business So let's take a look at the Phillips family. Uh, you'll see Leo there on the top left, married to Eileen. Um, and then we've got son James, who's 47, daughter Gemma, who's 45. So we'll start with James. James came back when Leo's health was failing. So, depends who you talk to, but to help save the family business. He's a very, very bright man. Uh, first degree from Oxford University um, and recently completed an MBA from INSEAD. He thinks that his sister has always been his father's favourite um, and in terms of James's career so far he's achieved his MBA and his intention, his ambition is to emigrate to the USA and pursue a career in management consultancy. That's sort of his, his and his wife Emma's joint joint wish, joint life ambition. However, James received a call from Keith, who was a long-standing employee at Health Tech Limited, sales director in name, but not technically on the board, and a non-family member. And Keith painted a very dire picture indeed of a business that's in trouble, um, with James's father, Leo, unable to cope due to his um, failing health and James quickly realised that his family had everything on the line. They had personal guarantees to the bank, charges over the house, etc. So a uh, difficult decision, but he came back and he took up the position of managing director at the business. And he worked for a few years with Keith to get the business back on track and sort of into a more stable position. So, uh, you know, not talking massive growth, just, just back back into a, a position of more stability. But this period was sort of marked with constant rows with his father. Leo was difficult, bad-tempered, rude to the employees, creating an atmosphere around the office um, 
and uh, it was just generally a really difficult, difficult time for James. And by this time, James had two children, Sam, who was four, and Alex, who was two, um, married to Emma, who was 45, as I've said. Um, and Leo rarely saw his grandchildren. Gemma, who was James's sister, was not involved in the business, but she was a joint uh, a shareholder, having an equal shareholding to James, which I'll come on to. Um, but James found that quite difficult. There he was, sort of slaving away in the business, and he only really had the same shareholding as his sister, who had no involvement in the business. So for James, the situation was becoming intolerable. And he eventually approached Leo and suggested that James buy all the shares, to which Leo agreed. However, Leo wanted a sum of money which was far beyond anything that James could have ever afforded. So moving on then to Leo. Leo was the founder of the business. Um, and Leo had had a sort of interesting but difficult life. He'd been a difficult child and he grew up it, uh, during the war in occupied Europe and his father was a member of the Belgian resistance movement and Leo was told from as far back as he could remember never to trust anyone it will cost you your life and Leo sort of lived by that mantra really he carried that message around um, he does not trust anybody and that includes James and Gemma his children he considers James to be a disappointment lazy, not as diligent as his sister. Um, and interestingly, he considers his wife's shares, Eileen's, to be sort of shares only in name only. They're really his. His health is not good. Um, and he's aware that relations with his wife aren't great either. Eileen is constantly in the middle of the battles between him and James. Um, and Leo's position is that he won't sell to James for less than what he considers the business to be worth. He's not going to give the business away to James just because James is his son. So that's a little bit of scene setting about Leo. So we'll move on to Leo's wife, Eileen. Eileen owns shares in the business, but she's not involved. Um, she is a technically the company secretary but she doesn't really do anything um, and she always felt that Leo was very hard on James and as a result in, in Eileen's view James never took a particular interest in Health Tech Limited and why would he? Eileen can only imagine that working with um, his father would be James's worst nightmare. Eileen is stuck in the middle and she doesn't know who to believe. Leo is once again saying he's um, had to save James. You know, James has finished his MBA and doesn't have a job, so Leo's had to find one for him. James, on the other hand, is saying that Leo can't manage the business anymore and that he has had to come back in order to save the business. He says that Leo's no longer competent and is putting everything that the family has at risk. Eileen loves her grandchildren. She lives for her grandchildren. Um, and she's really scared that the position they find themselves in will ultimately result in her not seeing uh, Sam and Alex, either because they, James takes the decision to go to America or because relationships sour so much that it's impossible for her to see them. So that fear is looming large for Eileen. 
she wants it sorted and she knows that she's a shareholder and she's wondering what sort of powers or sway that, that her shareholding gives her. And then finally, Gemma, uh, the younger sibling. Gemma is uh, a, a bit distant from the business. She has her own life in a different city, um, her own career in a completely different industry. Um, and she's married a husband who is wealthy in his own right. Um, she wants whatever's best for mum and dad. And she, she just, all she knows really is that something has to change. So Gemma's married to Adrian, but they don't have any children. So that's a bit about the family. So moving on to the company structure here, I've alluded to it already, but you can see that Leo and Eileen each own a 30% shareholding. James and Gemma each own a 20% shareholding. And we've got Leo, who has taken the role of technical director, was MD. And we've got James, who is now the managing director. So that's a bit about the company. Um, it owns its own premises currently, which is in the process of being sold to a pension fund, the beneficiaries of whom will be the family members. So James is in a tricky position. He's now MD, but his parents still own the majority shareholding. So that means that he's unable, he doesn't really have any teeth or any power and he is a bit hamstrung. He, he wants to move the business forward, take some, um, take some borrowing so that he can invest and, um, and, and drive things forward. He thinks that's critical to the future of the business. However, um, his parents just put a stop on everything. So he's feeling really frustrated. Uh, so there's a sort of difference in, in risk profile there between parents and, and James. And this is, again, fed into the tension between Leo and James, um, which, as you will have picked up, is affecting the running of the business and also the wider family relationships. Next slide. So, um, no doubt you um, have all seen this before. This is the three circle model. So the sort of seminal model of family business theory um, devised by Tagiri and Davis in the 1980s adds in the family system into the typical uh, business system so that instead of one overlap, you actually have seven. So um, there are multiple perspectives from which each person can be coming from. So if we just map the uh, Phillips family uh, scenario onto this, you can see uh, you've got Leo and James are both in the middle there, both owning shares, both working in the business, both family members. We've got Eileen and Jebba, who are share owners, but ha don't have anything to do with the day-to-day -day running of the business. You've got Keith, who's clearly a key, long-standing, loyal member of staff. Um, and you've got the 40-plus employees. And then you've got the spouses and James's children in, in the family circle. So, uh, something normally perhaps we discuss, but just in terms of things that maybe are jumping out at you. Um, obviously it's a bit crowded in the center there with Leo and James, both in that sort of central position um, for such a small business, that, that's a crowded, crowded scenario. Um, quite a lot of people on the, on the sort of family side of things within the family system. So perhaps that's pointing to family considerations 
um, outweighing business considerations or dominating them in the system. And then we've got the interesting position of Eileen and Gemma, who aren't involved in the business, um, but are sharehold shareholders, and so um, are potentially extremely influential in the system and in what happens next. And as is often the case in these scenarios, you've got the 40 plus employees. So you have an awful lot of people's livelihoods depending on the succession from G1 to G2 happening and the business surviving. Uh, so I thought we'd also just have a look at the genogram family tree, uh, however you like to refer to it. Um, uh, it can be useful to map some of what's happening onto that. And I feel like it's potentially an underused tool sometimes. So uh, I've just mapped out here some of the more complex genogram symbols. I've got the two lines denoting a really close relationship, a jagged line denoting a conflicted relationship. Um, I don't know how you describe the cutoff one, but you can hopefully see that on the screen. Dotted line for a, a relationship which is showing signs of being emotionally distant and then the thick uh, surrounding line for those that are working in the business. So if we, if we plot these onto the genogram, does that show us anything else about what the Phillips family and Health Tech Limited are going through? I'll just let you have, take that in. There's quite a lot going on in that uh, diagram. Obviously, standing out there, you've got um, the really conflicted relationship between uh, Leo and James. So that's looming, looming large. And then you've got Eileen again. She sort of popped up in the three-circle model as being a potential key influencer. And here again on the genogram, she's a holder of a, of a lot of strong relationships. Um, you know, the, the strength of her relationship to her grandchildren. Um, is really key and she also has a strong relationship with James um, and then also you can see the sort of emotional distance between the siblings there too um, there's probably more we could have added in there but that, that's probably enough for now so maybe just take a snapshot of that in your mind as we move on to the next slide which is again just a, a model just showing why there is so often a clash in the family business and it's really um, demonstrating that the, the, the sort of inherent system clash that exists because family systems, families operate um, in a certain way. They're, they're an emotional, they're a system bound by love or maybe you know um, negative emotions in some case. They're inward looking, they're sharing. Um, occasionally not but off mostly you have a lifetime membership doesn't matter what you do you're you're part of that family and they are a, sort of uh, averse to change and business systems are almost the complete opposite outward looking task-based emotion often not welcome or, or sort of not usual um, performance is rewarded if you don't perform you have to leave and business systems have to be um, quick to change in order to survive. So again, a sort of visual demonstration of, of, of what, why the clash can happen. So hopefully you've been sort of jotting down as we've been going. This is not a um, 
an exhaustive list, but it's just a few themes that um, arise in this case, um, which I thought we would just pick out. So the first one, really critical in G1 to G2 transitions is the reluctance of the founder to let go. And it's often said, there's been lots of um, uh, you know, research into this, that the, the founder considers the business as a child, they sort of gave birth to it in a way. Um, so letting go of it can be an incredibly emotional, difficult thing to do. And in, in letting go, in planning or in having to go through a succession process, the founder is having to face their own mortality. And here, Leo is already a very unwell man. So I imagine that having to stare to inevitable death in the face is really tough, really, really tough. And that's going to be um, really um, factoring into the, uh, the, the succession journey that this family's on. Um, and just going back to how um, the founder struggles to let go. In this case, um, so uh, in this case, Leo was really, well, really clear with me, actually. Um, so he, we would have long conversations, maybe an hour plus, um, not talking about the documents or the process or the law, but actually just him telling me his life story. So just needing to be heard, but also um, he was sort of describing how for him the business is a drug. Um, you know, it's something that he's, he's always done, he's done, he's known, he's grown, he's probably been running on adrenaline and, and he just cannot comprehend what life will be like when the business is in what he considers to be taken away from him. And again, there's the need in, in that letting go for the money, in this case, the valuation of the business or, or the, the, mark, the valuation put on the business sort of acts as a validation of, of Leo's life's work. So that number, which is causing James a lot of stress because he knows he can't, he can't match it or find it, um, is, um, is really, really important to Leo. So moving on to the next theme that arises, we've got the, the, the key players wearing, wearing various hats at any one time having simultaneous roles within the family business and it's causing real confusion. So a good example of that here is Eileen. We know that Eileen is, um, she's really scared about losing her grandchildren. She's terrified of losing her grandchildren and that's driving her behaviours. So that's driving her behaviour as an owner. She's never really given the shares a second thought before now but now she's beginning to wonder what does it mean and what can I do and how can I see this through um, what power do I have and, and what's driving that is her her desire to main, in part anyway is her desire to maintain that relationship with her with her grandchildren and again Leo and James a very typical G1 to G2 scenario father-son relationship here is is being played out in the business context. So often where they are, at least in theory, operating as fellow directors, what's really playing out are the, um, is the father-son relationship. So equality and fairness is often an issue which 
which arises in these sorts of scenarios. But here, um, it, again, it was really key uh, for Leo and for Eileen. They really felt um, that weight of responsibility to behave fairly between their siblings. Um, and fairly here sort of meant to them equality in terms of financial, um, the, the, the split of the, the, the family wealth. And of course, it's incredibly difficult to create complete um, parity um, financially um, when you're working with a family business system. So that was, that was something that needed to be explored in a lot of detail and um, ultimately needed to be worked through so that um, the solution was one that Leo and Eileen could, could be comfortable with. And again, well, we touched on this already, influencers within the family. So we've got Eileen um, influencing with her strong emotional relationships um, and uh, influencing, although she's not involved in the business, she is a shareholder and she's sort of stepping into those shoes and trying to understand what that means for her. Emma, so James's wife, uh, again, they had a plan and that plan has been um, put on, at least put on hold, possibly changed forever um, as a result of the call that James received from Keith. Um, Emma's view was that James is an incredibly bright man with a bright future ahead of him and that this was going nowhere fast. This was a waste of time. And why didn't they just uh, effectively give up on the family business um, as a lost cause? move to America as they planned to do so that he could um, really see through his, his career ambitions. And of course we had the influence of the non-family managers. So Keith here picking that phone up um, to James and um, you know, one can only imagine what would have happened if he hadn't done that. And then I've added as the final theme, succession conspiracy. Um, and that's a nod towards the um, the uh, really powerful article by Landsberg on this topic around how that all the players within a succession are often conspiring against a succession in some ways, um, uh, often subconsciously. So there's a desire to do the succession, but there's also fear and other things driving um, uh, behaviours that mean that uh, the various parties either put spanners in the work or hold back from seeing the process through. Here, um, once the solution or the agreement between the family had been reached about what the process needed to be, um, actually the process of documenting it and getting the tax advice, although there were complexities, was relatively straightforward. Um, however, Leo uh, was using all sorts of delaying tactics not today, dear, I can't talk to you about the documents because of my health. Of course, sometimes that was true, but it wasn't always true. Um, and also very quick to find fault um, or, or sort of fake fault, really. So what is this? This this must be wrong. Somebody's made a mistake. We can't proceed with the documents as they are when there, there was no mistake. He was just looking, looking for reasons to... Um, reasons to delay, hold back, not see it through, even though he knew deep down that that was what needed to happen. 
and um, not here, I'm glad to say, but often um, it's important to look at the role that advisors can play in the succession conspiracy. So, um, you know, mainly advisors are giving expert advice around very technical issues and, and the sort of barrage of emotion that, uh, that, and other factors that can hit in a, in a family business scenario um, can mean that advisors can, can for whatever reason, um, and quite understandably, struggle to navigate their way through through that. So um, again, not one we have time really to um, to delve into today, but I just sort of made an, a note of it. Um, so themes arising. And I thought that next we would look at, uh, very briefly, sorry, we don't have much time to do this, but what the solution looked like for the Phillips family. Well, um, there was the issue of valuation, uh, getting a third party valuation of the business um, and acceptance of what that meant and the number. Um, so the number wasn't as high as the number Leo had in his head. So Leo had a job to do in terms of accepting um, that. And again, James had to accept that perhaps he was going to have to experience some pain, um, put some skin in the game, was going to have to borrow um, to, to, in order to achieve the share purchase. Validation. Um, validation was a key part of this. Uh, validation of Leo's life work. Also in terms of finding out again, sort of valuation, validation, finding out how much Leo and Eileen needed for retirement. So they didn't necessarily need um, the big number that Leo had in his head, but of course it was important that they were taken care of in their retirement. Um, it was most certainly a family first solution. So what did Eileen and Leo need? What could James afford? And by looking at those two points, that was how um, a solution and a number was reached. Certainly compromise from all parties. And I don't want to get too techie, but um, the, the, the solution was a share, share buyback. So buyback of shares by the limited company. Um, there were also some share options put in place over um, Gemma's shares so that she was able to share in the tax relief that was available to the rest of the family. Um, and because of that, that meant that Gemma was going to be hanging around for a bit longer as a shareholder. So uh, James and Gemma needed to put together a shareholders agreement to um, sort of, um, oversee how their relationship as shareholders would look going forwards. There was the property sale that I've alluded to. There was what at the time we called um, it's deed of testamentary redistribution. Um, that was really just a document that said that on the death of the survivor of Leo and Eileen, James would pay Gemma a pre-agreed sum from his inheritance in order to level the financial playing field. Um, so that was something that, again, was really, really important to Leo and Eileen. They needed to see that. Um, so it was very bespoke to the family, arguably maybe not 100% necessary, but was just part of the package. And finally, collaborative working. So here you had family business consultants, lawyers, accountants, tax advisors and financial planners all having their part to play, all needing to work sensitively and collaboratively in the, in the best interests of the client. Um, I'm conscious that I've probably gone over on time, so do shout um, Sitsi and Nikkei if you do want to move on to questions, that's fine. But finally, I just wanted to share 
um, some of James's reflections on the process. Um, uh, and I was going to share the whole, his whole, a lot, a lot more than this, but um, given time, we'll just share this. And, and James said that he hoped, well, I'll read it verbatim, I hope that in your work you can bring these kinds of stories to life for people and families who find themselves in similar situations. It is so important to understand what to do with one's business before becoming dependent on it or unable to envision anything beyond it. Otherwise, you are going to end up going down with a sinking ship or doing a lot of damage to those who come to try to help you. Your input was invaluable in making our family go through a process that helped us all. My father passed away with family standing by in a situation that is so much healthier and more positive than would have been the case if we had not managed the transition of the business. So some, some real, well, certainly I find that to be real, really poignant um, and real food for thought. Um, ultimately, I think the process saved the family relationships um, and, and also, also the business, but there's no doubt about it that the process was too late in the day, really. So if there's one message I'd, I'd love for you to take away from today, it's start now before it's too late. Um, it's always far better to start too early than to leave it too late, always. Um, and so, uh, uh, open to questions and, and, and discussion. All right, thank you so much, Emma, for that insightful presentation, especially being able to actually dwell into a real life situation and being able to see the intricate complexities that happen when uh, there is a transition and a succession more so when we're not prepared for it and there are a lot of comp a lot of factors that play into it just looking at this how we from your point of view and from somebody who continue who's worked with family businesses what do you think makes us delay the process um it's a really really good question um and I don't think it's any one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, often, and it depends whose perspective you're looking at that question you know, from, but certainly for founders, I think that ability to stare your own mortality in the face is mm -hmm. a very, it's a very difficult thing for all human beings to do. You know, I think as, as young people, we feel immortal. We think mm -hmm. we're never going to die. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as we get older and we have our own children that that certainly changes but I think at whatever stage you're at that is incredibly hard and there's no doubt about it the succession process letting go of the business um, it, that in itself is a sort of death of sorts um, and, and um, it's certainly the case that the um, the, um, the sort of grieving process model that Kubler-Ross put in is put forward is often sort of um, uh, uh, talked about in that um, in that context such that the person that's um, having to let go is having to go through their own grieving process in terms of the business but also just in terms of you know looking yourself in the eye and and, and knowing that that that, that um, in some ways that's it of course there's life beyond the family business but for some people particularly people like Leo mm -hmm. um, that's that's a really difficult one to um, to square away in your head um, just continuing further on that thought process, 
um, I think I've talked to quite a number of people when going through the succession planning journey and um, trying to navigate um, looking at the business in the future. How can we possibly frame it so that business owners realize that it's not looking at your own mortality as much as it is looking at your own immortality because this is a business that you've set up that you've spent your life building and going into the future it is the one thing that can actually take your name your reputation and everything that you hold dear your values your mission everything into the future and make you immortal um, well, I think, I mean, you've put it beautifully. Um, and I think, you know, finding ways to, to make that very point um, is hugely powerful. Um, I also think, and, you know, it's incumbent upon all of us really to normalize the process. So it, I think even now, although there's so much talked about um, uh, around succession, I think it's not necessarily uh fronted up early enough in the process um and i so i think as and as advisors it's it's for us to really normalize the process again use story so we've used the story today in a little bit of a negative way of gosh how it, it nearly went wrong but mm-hmm. there's a, you know there's many stories of families that have really taken the bull by the horns and been really proactive and have wonderful results in terms of nurturing the next gen finding a way to 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 to, to um, make the most of that talent pool um, and, and exactly what you described, create a, 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 a really meaningful legacy. So I guess sharing more of those stories and, and also normalizing the process. Mm. Does that I have one question? So I had one question, um, just to frame it from the perspective of the next generation. Sure. What role um, can they play in how can they start this process off? Because you've, you've spoken from the perspective of the founder. Mm-hmm. How, can they, how, how best can they approach succession planning um, with um, the founders or the prior generation? Um, I think it can be a really tough one. So um, ultimately, you're, you're talking to your parents, again, partly about their own mortality, mm-hmm. um, but also about really sensitive topics like money and ownership and power, um, uh, about your own, as the next gen, your own capabilities. So um, I, I don't think it's an easy feat. Um, again, I think that starting starting small and starting early um are probably the key takeaway messages and they sound a bit vague but i think they just hold good really in terms of gently starting the conversation and uh, and and being really sensitive to the um the founder generation or the incumbent generations um challenges but 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 really taking the ball by the horns not letting go um, not being defeated and also for the next gen I think reaching out to other next gens from other businesses um, sh- uh, sharing uh, thoughts sharing best practice what's worked for them that can be really helpful as well because I think it can be a really lonely place um, otherwise um, I've got a question here from 
Ebele Chuku, and um, it is the solution to this family may not work for all models of family business. So to what extent will this model solution be applicable to other family with maybe a different cultural background? Um, it's a really good question and I think I would echo that. I probably should have put that in the slides. It's, um, it's certainly not a one-size-fits-all scenario and actually what's quite shareable about the scenario I, um, that we've been through today is that, um, to be honest, a solution was reached fairly quickly and in the grand scheme of things quite easily. Um, so uh, I think no two families are the same, no two businesses are the same, so we can't possibly expect the, um, the solutions to be the same. Um, so I think the, the, the key points, wherever you're coming from, whatever cultural background, um, whatever the scenario is, is to take, um, take good advice early from people that you trust. Be very, very wary of um, anything that feels, has the look or feel of an off the shelf solution. Um, um, and, and just to tread very carefully and very lightly. And of course, um, the, the cultural context of each family business will play into both the, um, the issues they experience the extent to which they experience them and what any, any solution might look like. We have another question from Marina. She, um, how important is it to go through this process alongside the challenges business owners and families are facing today? Um, again, a really, really good question. Um, I think there are probably um, various stages that uh, of the process that or the, sort of the bigger picture that we're all experience experiencing with the current pandemic and the current crisis and um i think while we're all in the white heat of that it can be a very it's probably not the right time to embark upon a process like this unless um unless you have to because circumstances are forcing you to or in some circumstances, if families are in the privileged position of um, having some time on their hands, I know some people have, I'm, I know that lots of people haven't, um, but if, if you do, it might be a good time to be starting to ask yourself the sorts of questions that, um, uh, that, that, will, that will help you to frame, frame, frame what your succession process might um, B. In terms of how important it is to go through a process like this, again, it, it really does depend on each family um, and each business. And, and some family businesses, you know, some families culturally, they, they communicate well. They've naturally put the sorts of communication channels that you need in place and they don't experience um, difficulties around talking about things like money and um, and death um, and, and they manage it by themselves so it's by by no means a necessary process for every family business but it can be um, an incredibly powerful one for the majority of um, business families that will experience some some of the challenges that this family faced right i don't think i think we've answered all the questions that were in that had been sent in by um, the participants today 
So I'd like to just thank you, Emma, for your time this afternoon and for sharing with us um, such an interesting case study that has allowed us to think deeply into our succession planning and um, how we should go about it, especially after CODEV. Mm -hmm, indeed, yeah. No, it's, it's certainly a brave new world for us all. And um, well, I'd just like to say thank you for inviting me. I've, it's, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed uh, it. So thank you. And just to make sure that people can contact you and reach out to you, can you just share with us how they can get hold of you? Yep. So probably the best way is the FBC website, www.thefbc.co.uk, um, or you can email me or drop me a line on LinkedIn. Um, okay, perfect. Um, um, we look forward to sharing more with you in future events, webinars, and hopefully physical soon. That'd be lovely. Yeah, I look and forward to that. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Many All thanks. Right. Bye, 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 Bye,